0: Welcome back to another episode of the Lynx Golf Podcast. I'm digital editor Al Lunsford for Lynx, joined by Joe Passoff, my co-host. And today we're pleased to be joined by Andy Staples, uh, owner of Staples Golf Design and Golf Course Architect, uh, to talk about some golf course architecture. Who knows where where else this conversation will go, but uh, thanks, Andy, for joining us. Uh, for those who are not familiar with with you and your work could you give us a little uh elevator speech about who you are and what
1: you do yeah sure great uh thanks al thanks joe good to be here uh so i'm a golf course architect i am based in scottsdale arizona i i've been on my own now Uh, this year it will be 20 years which is interesting to say that uh actually going through a a year-end Email uh, for my newsletter, and I kind of that just dawned on me as 20 years ago that we started out on our own. So yeah, I, I'm I'm one of those guys that that didn't have a famous father, and I did not win a U.S. Open. Uh, so I'm hard to uh, uh, one of those guys that not many people have have heard about. But I I've been fortunate to work all around the world throughout my career, of which now uh, across most of North uh, North America, down from Florida over to New Jersey, up in Canada, and fortunately, uh, I have a couple of home games here in my home state, Arizona, here in Phoenix. So, uh, really fortunate to do what I do, and uh, love every minute of it.
0: Let's touch on what you have in the works right now. When um, you mentioned some home games, so what are, what are your current projects at hand?
1: Probably most notably, and what I'm pretty excited about is this February. February, we're going to close down Mesa Country Club. a complete renovation new irrigation system new greens greenside bunkers It's a private club built in 1948 by a collaboration between william p bell and william f bell william p bell of course known doing some work in the golden age time and uh, the two uh, we understand this is their first collaboration really cool kind of midwestern feeling club and so that's starting this this next year and A couple other projects probably most uh, excited about in the next couple of years after Mesa would be would be uh, Phoenix Country Club uh, doing a master plan there and hoping to uh, to move that into construction. over the next uh, couple of years, we're still kind of finishing up the master plan there. But, you know, some of the same same discussions, you know, Arizona is talking a lot about water conservation. We're talking a lot about uh, a new uh, water management plan that's coming down through uh, the golf industry and through all all water users. So irrigation systems, turf conversions, talking about not overseeding uh, golf courses uh, in some situations. So yeah, a lot of lot, lot's happening in the golf industry here in Arizona. I'm, it's really cool to be a part of it.
0: I know sustainability is part of your uh, golf design approach. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about how that fits in and how you approach uh, your profession and, and golf courses.
1: Yeah. So the, the it, it's always kind of been a part of my, I guess, maybe my, my upbringing. I, I, I grew up uh, in Wisconsin, where we, we did a lot of hunting and fishing and went up to the Northern part of the state. And so I've always kind of, maybe I've had a, a, a tilt towards, uh, kind of e- ecology and environmental awareness at least of the land and uh, and when I, as a matter of fact when I first started my own my own business as I said it was it's kind of hard to, to be getting going as a as a young upstart architect and part of uh, you know, me carving out my own my own niche I, I went outside of the golf industry and proposed some water and energy efficiency programs uh, to a variety of golf courses throughout the state of California and so, uh, interestingly enough, I believe I was the first to ever get accepted for a, a golf-specific energy water efficiency program, paid specifically by a utility company, and and provided reporting and assessments to golf courses for no charge. And so, that uh, was only a couple of years after I launched on my own. And so, I think, you know, as I as I've kind of honed the message one, it's, it's, it's just the responsible thing to do, but it's also, you know, as a golf course architect, we're hired to create great, great golf courses that are fun, unique, and, uh, and interesting to play. And, but yet in the background, I, I kind of promote myself as being somebody who just always, you always just know that I'm looking through the lens of, of water and maintenance efficiency, because it's just really, uh, it's just the right thing to do. And I think it's, it's one of the ways that, that I can actually be a part of either leaving the golf industry better than I found it, and or or hopefully uh, to continue to have an industry. Uh, so as I go through my the rest of my career. So yeah, it's a core value of our companies, and and I think it's something that that feels like it, it's a bit of a separator for us.
0: Joe, you know all about that in Arizona, I presume.
2: Oh, I'm, I'm uh, have a nodding acquaintance with the topic, um, Andy. You know, uh, sustainability is a buzzword, and it has been for a while, but it, as Al mentioned, yeah, I mean, it was central to uh, your entire career in architecture. Uh, Arizona has its own peculiarities related to sustainability, including water conservation. What are you doing specifically at Mesa Country Club? We'll just start there. Um, That kind of you sold the club on so to speak when you made some suggestions and said yeah we can we can accomplish your goals and we can we can do it sustainably
1: i got hired i guess oh maybe two and a half years ago now and i recall going through our assessment of the course as we as we do when we start our master planning and we got to the irrigation system and got to the 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 reservoir that holds our irrigation water. It comes right out of a, uh, a canal system and part canal, part part well water, which is part of the, the sensitivity here. And it, it was it was clear that this was a, some infrastructure that was in dire need well past its life life cycle. And, and the they, word was that they'd been trying to get these projects approved and just weren't able to do so. And I remember standing in front of the membership yeah, I do a lot of introductory meetings and in, in kind of town hall, not really town hall, but focus group meetings that have uh, groups of people, groups of members that, that join. And I remember saying, hey, if we do nothing else in this project, we're going to replace your irrigation system. Your, your reservoir is leaking. So you, you pay for the water. It goes in the, into the, the reservoir. It goes right back into the ground. Uh, then you look at the, the, the worn out sprinklers, uh, the, the, the efficiencies of the sprinkler coverage the leaks the the fixes that they were doing and so so for MESA, it was really just clearly an infrastructure project that that not only uh, were they spending countless hours fixing but they were uh, surely wasting water and so uh, as we parlayed that discussion you know it's a big deal to to get a new irrigation system it's costly it's it's when you actually have to replace everything it it, it has some downtime to the course so that was a real easy, easier time to be able to say, okay, if we're going to close uh, a portion of your course, uh, you know, should we consider doing more work Then that kind of rolled into a whole other discussion about their putting surfaces and, and the quality of their, of their greens and the, and the bunkers. And so really it, it was a case study for, for master planning and proposing uh, upgrade of infrastructure, infrastructure that's going to, you know, be less costly to maintain and and give you better a better product, and so as we work through that process, the, the club, uh, fortunately, signed off on it, and 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 the members are are letting us go through, and it, it's it's going to be a thirty year investment project for them, a thirty year life cycle. It's it's a tremendous opportunity for them, and I think everybody's excited because it's going to take the take the conditioning and the, the quality of the architecture to a whole nother level.
2: Andy, for folks who are listening and don't know this about golf in Arizona, you know, you've got a situation where golf courses that were built before the 1980s, so to speak, were mostly Parkland golf courses like you'd find in Wisconsin or Michigan or Ohio. New regulations were put into place about how many acres you were allowed to irrigate. In ter- of turf grass in the 1980s. And since then, those regulations have actually, I think, been modified several times with each generation having a new restriction, new proposals, and so forth. What is a club that was grandfathered in, so to speak, like Mesa, what is their concern with water? And how are you helping them uh, not only achieve that goal, but comport with what the state? is
1: going to ask for over the next few years. Yeah, I think Arizona is, is pretty well recognized as being one of the first, if not the first state to put a requirement on those acres of turf, 90 acres. And so uh, because of that restriction or because of that that cap, so to speak, the golf industry has been pretty good uh, in terms of manage, managing the water, if you, if you look at, you know, as an industry and as a whole. But yes, there's a, a variety of courses that, uh, that are now uh, looking looking back and saying, okay, yeah, we were built in the '40s, '50s, or or before those regulations. Like Mesa, Mesa has 125 acres of turf, and and it's it's a parkland style. It actually has is built on a mesa, actually it goes up and down. Way more uh, way more way more land movement than what you would typically think you'd find here in kind of the central part of Phoenix. Uh, interestingly enough, you tee over the entrance road a few times, so 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 that. With a couple of mature trees, it actually really feels uh, a lot like where I grew up in Wisconsin, like you said. Um, And a
2: tea tea shop over an entrance road. I mean, there's another similarity between Mesa Country Club and Cypress Point Club. Cypress Point, (laughs) of course. (laughs) Go ahead, Andy. (laughs) That's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah, (laughs) Uh,
1: Spot on. Yeah, so with 125 acres, so what, where, where, so the two questions, two answers here are one is that the, the the regulations from acreage have now shifted to an allotment. And they know enough about how much overseeded turf and warm season Bermuda grass turf should use over an annual basis. So they, they now have moved to given each course an allotment. That allotment then really minimizes the total number of acres uh, that you can have. And then you know, Then the next question would be, uh, when you have that allotment, how do you actually use it more specifically? So at Mesa, we're going to look at reduction of of some of those 125 acres. But also, we're exploring places where we can perhaps keep some of the turf, but water sections of it. The irrigation system is going to be designed designed by Marvin Mills, a local irrigation consultant here, with a, a great deal of flexibility for us to be able to manage each zone, if you will. So the, the greens and the tees and the fairways will be irrigated in a manner, uh, but differently than say some of the out of play areas. So we we have that ability to kind of shut down some areas. We'll convert some of the turfs to some non-turf areas, uh, but we also now have the ability to keep some turf that really on a low, low water use requirement. And then actually the, the kind of the holy grail for all of the desert, uh, golf courses is to find a, a a variety of turf that that can stay green all year round 12 months a year with the intention of perhaps not overseeding and so that that uh, water seeding window uh, and the amount of, of water that you need to keep the golf course green throughout the winter is another part of this allocation story so if a golf course chooses to not overseed then that water goes back to their to their allocation so perhaps you can afford now have enough water to irrigate more than, you know, say 90 acres. So, uh, yeah, there's a variety of of new turf grasses coming on the market. There's a number of courses here in the Valley that are starting to do those types of research projects, and some, as a matter of fact, are actually converting to the new turf and and not overseeding. So uh, those are all the conversations that we're going to continue to have at Mesa. As of today, Mesa is still planning on overseeding, uh, but over the next five years, our intention is that we will evolve... Uh, into the new turf to just to, to consider not overseeding
2: boy that is the holy grail has getting that green grass the whole year and not having to do the time the labor the cost the money all that uh yep. you know to have to overseed uh, along with those conditions al i'm going to jump in with one more question that'll yeah uh, uh, mesa focus but also get us into all the different directions that andy goes and and andy uh, i mean you know i live in arizona just like you do water and water issues are absolutely central to our existence but most of us our eyes glaze over when you get into the nuts and bolts and specifics of water uh, it's just the way it is uh, science in general sometimes that has effect but where our eyes get wide open among architecture fans are bunker styles, so you're also looking at redoing the greenside bunkers at Mesa Country Club. And I know you have Golden Age influences. Um, you eventually you're going to tell us that you grew up uh, with some Golden Age golf uh, that you came to love and, and had some interesting influences, not just the usual suspects from the 1920s. Uh, but some really well-regarded guys. So uh, I don't know what I want you to talk about first, but how did you choose the bunker style that you're going to do at Mesa Country Club, which is one of the courses in Arizona we have that's closest to Golden Age, even though it's actually just 1940s? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, I was brought up playing a golf course in Rural Wisconsin. It was designed by two guys, uh, William Langford and Theodore Moreau, and they—they they were, uh, you know, the quintessential, Golden Age architects. Who, at, at the, you know, from great number of years, no one really even knew who they were. They just knew that they built all these golf courses throughout the, midst, you know, the Midwest area. Uh, some of the people might be familiar with a uh, Seth Raynor or C. B. McDonald. Very. Engineered the template discussion, Lido up in uh, up in Wisconsin. That's just been uh, kind of reincarnated. The uh, uh, strong grass faces, uh, more angled uh, features, really strong, very penal features. I, I remember as a as a beginner golfer hitting him in, uh, my golf ball into some of these areas and having a real difficult time getting out. Of course, I never blamed the architecture at that point. I always thought it was just the fact that I wasn't very good at golf. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but you know, I think so. So the beginning of the story to me, I feel is that, you know, whether consciously or subconsciously, the idea of this, this, uh, you know, this historic architecture, as we know it today, is uh, kind of seeped into my into my being. And I think that's where I kind of draw a lot of my inspiration. I I can't say that. I have any one particular architect that I like more than others. I have, I certainly have worked on on courses uh, by the old guys uh, more than others, but I appreciate just history and, and authenticity that that comes with those those courses. So, so I'm always I'm always traveling. I'm always trying to see see more things, learn more things. There's, it's amazing to me how much there is to see out in the world of golf architecture. And so, as I kind of brought this 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 tendency, maybe of of historic golf architecture to the, you know, the, the, the now common world of sustainability and water efficiency, maintenance efficiency. Remember pre COVID, there was a time that we all thought that maybe people weren't going to play golf again and whether or not there was going to be golf course closures, more closures than there were openings. And so uh, for a great number of years, it was, it was a discussion about efficiency and cost reductions and things like that. So I have to bring in this, my first trip over to Australia. Uh, in the sand belt of Australia in uh, the Melbourne area and up in Adelaide. and it was there. if anybody's been there, you, you know that it's it's an arid it's an arid country in places and and it actually is very fitting to say Northern California in some places. and I saw the way that they were maintaining their golf courses in a in a, just a, a a minimalist way they, they their bunkers evolved over a period of time based almost entirely on on maintenance and and obviously the the sand belt there's the plenty of sand underneath it makes makes building bunkers in that area pretty pretty easy and much easier to maintain than at say mesa but uh, i i pay attention to to the the edges and how the the grass turf or the cooch grass as they call it over there how it blends into uh the bunkers in royal melbourne uh uh, Kingston Heath, uh, Victoria Club, you know, uh, a new one, uh, Peninsula Kingwood that just opened. And you start to see some of this, what I would feel, very, very strong lineage to the Golden Age with Alistair McKenzie and and so forth. And now, um, now others are, are kind of building those bunkers. And I, so I've melded those two together. And I think uh, if I was to try to take the history of of Mesa Country Club and, and William P. Bell's connection George Thomas and Riviera, and and Los Angeles Country Club and Bel Air, and kind of bring in this kind of Royal Melbourne sandbelt style. It it not only is very historic and and very true to the Golden Age, but when you build the bunkers properly, they're actually very uh, maintenance friendly. You can actually get real close to maintenance with the with the mowers, and you can do it in a way that is not a lot of handwork and and so the bunkering at, at Mesa will start to bring in a little bit of this hybrid of of the sand belts, and then maybe something that you may have seen at Riviera and, and L.A. Country Club. Um, however, there's going to be obviously a, a melding of all of that. But that's where I've dropped my inspiration. I'm, and what's really going to be cool is it's going to be unlike anything else here in the valley, which I'm pretty excited about.
2: Definitely. Al, uh The fun thing about Andy is uh, he cannot be pigeonholed. Uh, (laughs) The awards, the honors that you've, you've gotten Andy over the last few years. uh, I mean, you do so many different kinds of things in so many different places from restorations of really old golf courses, like one we want to talk about uh, in, in Michigan in the Detroit area called Meadowbrook uh, to um, an amazing concept that you pulled off in Florida at PGA National. And I think Al's been down there to see that work. Um, Al, what do you want to know from Andy on, on on what he's accomplished at these places? You
0: know, I actually have not been to PGA National. Um, so I haven't seen it in person, but uh, plenty of pictures, you know, striking images came out from what you did uh in transforming the Squire course there uh, which is probably the course that got the least amount of play into what is now two courses uh and it kind of you know gives something for everyone there a different dynamic to that resort completely um what you know inspired you towards the idea of your match course there uh, re- reduced in length from a normal championship layout to uh emphasize match play and no team marker, something that's kind of in vogue right now. Uh and more and more people are building that. And then the um the staple as well. And uh some really incredible, you know, we're talking about golden age golden age golf course architecture. I saw the the picture of the beer Green screen there at the staple and was kind of, yeah. you know. Jaw dropping. So, uh, what you know? What was your inspiration out there?
1: Yeah. So, B.J. Uh, National, host of the uh, what was the Honda Classic? I forget who the title sponsor is now. The Palm Beach Classic, uh, the Jack Nicklaus uh, renovation where they host of the Ryder Cup, and 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 they had a number of other courses. They had the Squire, they have the Fazio, the, the Palmer, and then they have uh, the Champ Course, which is the tournament course. And interestingly enough, this all came about during COVID. So I uh, actually did all my research uh, online, did my interview online. And uh, one of the big takeaways that I could tell right away was that course had, had long and had difficult covered with the, <laughs> the golf courses. And so when I got to the Squire, Squire was uh, designed by George and Tom Fazio, 1983, I believe. Uh, it did not have any of the investment that it uh, others had over the years. It had drained poorly. It was the the least played course out of out of all the four courses. And so I looked at it at the offerings. I also looked around me. You go up to Bandon Dunes, and you know that you, you get there early. You go play the par three course. You go you stay out late. You go out on the uh, on the 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 punch bowl putting green. And now the same guys are are doing the work at Sand Valley. They've got a I think a par 69 Sedge Valley's coming out, which is a lesser, smaller course. And kind of had I, that had not opened yet. That was still planning. I kinda of heard grumbling of, of of that concept. I had also visited Ohoopi Match Club, the private club out in, in Georgia that was designed by Gil Hans and played that a few times and just realized that there's a, a bunch of things kind of swirling around one the, the heart of the game the way the game began was was not a stroke play game it was a match play game so so the idea wasn't so much you know playing against par or playing against the course it was playing against your 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 opponents. and so i got into a habit of saying that this is going to be a course that my six beats your seven doesn't matter what you shot as long as you shoot one less uh, than what your opponent is so So that compared to the fact that they had long and hard covered and that they didn't have a par three course. They didn't have a a robust practice area or a short game area. And so this 18 hole squire course now got pulled apart into different sections. And it was, it was the, the original course was an 18 hole non-returning 18. So you would go out and not come back to the clubhouse until you come back to 18. So one and 18 were two par fives that played parallel to each other and, just happened to be a perfect, perfect size and shape for a for a nine hole par three course, and so we took those uh, holes number one and eighteen of the old Squire and kind of designated those to be par three practice. It's right next to the champ driving range, so it's very convenient. And so we said, hey, we got we got to make sure we do a par three course, knowing that it's a resort. They also have member play, so this is a place for somebody that you can bring your grandkids, you can have your your buddies. So the part 3 course was always something that, that kind of felt like a natural but i wasn't sure you know taking 18 holes and making two courses out of it, it's not necessarily something you think is always available so we went out on the remaining 16 holes and tried to figure out if there was an opportunity to get 18 holes out of out of the remaining 16. so we got all the property lines we we kind of reviewed the whole section of land that the rest of the squire consisted or uh, was was positioned on and so sure enough we've we found a couple of pl- places where we we brought in two par threes to make 18 holes and so you know so then obvious the obvious question is okay so how are you going to actually take the 16 holes and make it a regulation or a championship course out of the remaining 16 holes it's you know as much land as we thought we could find we weren't going to all of a sudden find you know the remaining you know, 500 or thousand yards that you needed to get back up to the same, same distance. So, so the, the discussion moved to, okay, let's, let's create a golf course that's shorter or sporty, if you will, using a historic golden age term, but that really wrapped its arms around drivable drive and pitch type uh, two shot holes. You know, everybody loves to be able to, to reach a par five and two. So, we don't we don't do par anymore so it might be a little longer than what you would normally call a par 4 if you will but it's a little bit more difficult and we're on the green and green complex that you know your your second shot's always going to get around the green but it might take you two or three to get down from there and so it just kind of evolved into this idea that hey we from a land planning standpoint from a planning perspective we knew that the par 3 course was something that we wanted to go and and then we when we knew that we had a little extra land, we got 18 holes in there. Cause God forbid we'd ever actually try to promote a 16-hole course. We had to have 18. There's there's some tricks tr- 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 in golf. You just can't can't let go of. So Brookfield Properties is our was the owner that took over the resort. Uh, and we sold this this concept uh, to the to the managers that we were working with at Brookfield. They 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 signed off on it, they loved it, and away we went. And now we've got each course, 18 holes. Uh, roughly 5,850 5, yards or so. No par. No markers. It's not rated. You just go play golf. Hopefully, you bring as many in your in your group as you as you want, up to eight. And some cases, And then when you're done, and you want to just kind of hang out, have fun with the with your group or your friends or your your kids. Uh, the nine hole staple course is right next to the resort and very accessible and and is uh, a really fun. Uh, all short mown grass, no real tees there either. You just kind of pick a spot. There's the Anirondack chairs that face what direction you're supposed to go. And um, what's cool about the staple course is I intentionally routed it in a figure eight. So knowing that as you would walk through the, the routing of the figure eight, that you would come across to a couple other players. And so that, that intersection of the eight, the center of the eight is kind of is, is the social center of the, of the staple course. So there's picnic benches, there's places for, food trucks and stuff like that. So really wanted to make it a kind of a social atmosphere. And I, you know, the, the, the resort's doing a pretty good job of that. So that's how they all came together.
0: Yeah. That's, I think that's so refreshing. And, um, I mean, taking it back to a simpler time where the, the concept of par isn't really your, your chief, uh, concern. And, um, You know, if only if only other places made it that simple and maybe this is the the time that we (laughs) ask you uh, about a much more complicated uh, issue at hand. And uh, the of course, if we're all like that, maybe this ball rollback conversation wouldn't be such a huge deal. And um, Rollback.
1: What are you talking about? There's there's going to be a rollback.
0: Well, I understand they're just adding more skin <laughs> to the golf ball. And so it'll roll back further. No, I didn't hear anything about that.
1: <laughs> no, of course. Uh, no, it's great. Yeah. It, yeah, I'm happy to talk about it. Um yeah, I well, think I, the rollback I, is a very yeah. interesting conversation. Go ahead, sorry.
0: I, I just what what are your thoughts? I mean, how does that affect you and your profession and, and what do you as a you know pretty solid player yourself? Um like Joe said, you're a three or four handicapped golfer. I mean, when you hear that, uh, it's going to be something that doesn't just affect the, the guys at the top and you're not talking about bifurcation and a, a wooden bat versus a metal bat split for pros versus amateurs. This is across the board. Um, just curious as to, to your thoughts from your perspective.
1: Yeah, so I, I'm i've I've been in favor of some form of of an adjustment to the the distance the golf ball goes uh, for a lot a lot of time now and, and 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 I could just play this weekend and i I vividly remember trying my hardest to to figure out how to hit the ball you know two hundred ninety yards when I was in high school and college it was a it was a perfect swing it was, I was just coming out of the persimmons and into the the titanium drivers the tour burners and you, 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 you teed it up on a pencil so it was up high and try to get it going as far as you could and and now i can routinely hit it as far as i i did uh, back then when i was a lot better shape and, and really playing hard to to get better but um so i think if, i don't understand why there is a resistance if you actually kind of dive deep into the data and what what I find interesting about this is it becomes a black and white discussion. Uh, it's going to affect the, the the average player more than it will the better player. I just don't see it that way. If it's proportionate, as long as it, and of course, we don't know what the final <laughs> ruling is going to be, but if it's proportionate, you know, 5% or 10% or whatever the number ends up being, it's going to, in my mind, have a very minimal effect on on the average player, especially those players that have a hard time hitting it square on the face anyway. So I'm I'm in favor. I was actually surprised. Of, sounds like they're not going to go the bifurcation route. I I like the fact that we play all the same rules. I I'm one of those guys. But in terms of the money and the way the tour rolls, I would have thought that the bifurcation would have been uh, more accepted. And doesn't sound like that's the case. And so uh, I've been reading, uh, you know, Rory McIlroy's conversation uh, comments this weekend. Patrick Harrington came out uh with some really good uh, uh feedback that i thought was spot on that that i think first off we don't really know how it's going to affect everybody until you hit the, this equipment and i think once they actually see it i don't see how it's going to be as big of a of an impact as everyone is fearing and then if you translate it into development that was me as a player you know mm-hmm. player is one thing but if you talk about development you, know, you at some point you're going to have to stop you can't just keep putting back tees and making things longer so five or ten percent reduction in my mind means five or ten perhaps five or ten percent less water use five percent less maintenance costs and i just don't see how that's a bad thing you know I, the costs of golf have skyrocketed over the last couple of years and i think anything that the, the governing bodies can do to kind of kind of rein that in i think is going to be a positive and you know, the USGA gets, gets, uh, you know, dinged up quite a bit for their being reactionary. I'm one, I was a, I was an anchor. <laughs> I was actually a pretty good putter when I anchored and I'm bummed that there's a rule now that you can't anchor. Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, but I think ultimately we find that over a period of time, maybe some of these rules start to be, may, may not look great to begin with, but I think over time we'll, will prove out to be a, a, a benefit. And I think, I think that, I think it has to be done. So I think that's, that's my initial reaction.
0: It looks like it's something that's not going to even occur for another, you know, seven years, maybe 2030 is what I was seeing some reports, uh, potentially, and, and it all remains to be seen when, once we get the official news that this is happening, but, um, yeah, I, I'm kind of with you. I, I think the the effects are being blown way out of proportion, and um, the the adverse of that is how good it is for the actual game of golf and, and what you're describing as a developer is a really important point that um, you know weekend golfers can complain about. You know, every time they miss hit a shot, it's going to be because the golf ball doesn't go as far, and. <laughs> You know, you have that in your back pocket now, but uh, I, yeah, I, I just don't think it's going to have that big of a, of effect that as people think on. You
1: know. I think I think it does have the, the ability to affect a higher swing speed player. I, that's that's one thing. If I am seeing a trend, you know, we always talk about carry distances for the better player. We talk about how far a bunker needs to be you know, placed to, quote unquote, challenge the better player. And I just my my own sense that, you know, that has grown, you know, quite easily from, say, 265 to 275 yards now to to 305 yards, sometimes even further. So that and that's just in my career. I'm I'm only 51, so I still think I'm young, but I've been playing golf long enough to know that, you know, if it keeps going, you know, what are we going to? at what point does it stop and i and I know that there's this idea of it's an entertainment and golf hasn't been at such a, a a high level and it's never been more successful but you know for anybody that plays golf and loves golf they love golf for the adventure they love it for the challenge and i I just don't see anybody that says that they're going to quit the game over 10 yards or whatever and I don't even think it's going to be 10 yards but it, you know to me just that seems short-sighted I don't think that that's quite right but we all love the game for the reasons we love it, and and the extra ten yards isn't why why we love the game.
0: Yeah, yeah. I just thought of something interesting, Joe. I don't know if you've come across this, but um, my my dad's home club in North Carolina just did a a renovation, and part of what they did was, um, you know, there were some holes that the the bunker placement because of advances and technology was really irrelevant it was it was you had some fairway bunkers that everyone just hit over because of uh, when this was built it's an old donald ross course and it's it just isn't relevant to the modern player so they moved things uh back a bit so that those fairway bunkers are more in play could still kept the strategic design of the whole but just kind of put the bunkers in a place where they would. Actually, challenge a, a shot off the tee. I mean, do you think that some of these courses that have made changes to adjust to the modern game are going to face, you know, a difficulty when the, the ball rolls back and and that's no longer, you know, relevant? Or is this just so minimal where that's not really a concern? I don't know if that makes sense. What I was trying to describe, but uh, the changes were made to go to the modern game and now if things are going to come back a little bit does that have any effect
1: i mean if you ask me i think that's you know i'd love to hear what joe thinks about that I, and my my standpoint is that's a that's a minimal effect and if nothing else there's always T's ahead that that create a setup for for every skill level i mean to me that's what's so funny about this is that you know you lose the you lose the drive the whole point is to move forward you know and 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 then move to a set of tees that the golf course is presented in a way that's that's indicative and challenging to your own game, and so you know that's to me that seems that's a small detail on all of this, and it's just a tee. It's not it's not continuing to renovate. That's what golf courses are needing to do. They're continuing to renovate every fifteen or twenty years, if not sooner, to address it. And I've seen it over the you know. 30 some years that I've been in the business, it just continues to evolve.
2: Yeah, it's uh, an interesting question, Al. Uh, And it may not have, you know, such a significant effect that the folks that did relocate their bunkers um, are going to have to worry too much. But you know, what's, you know, what's funny is that, Uh, Obviously, uh, we know, Andy, you know, different bunkers have different purposes, and some are intended to penalize a poor shot, but others are meant to be more strategic. Take on this bunker for a better angle in. And yet there are also golfers out there that just don't either appreciate or understand the inherent fun of strategic golf design. You know, that I remember hearing a description about Arnold Palmer that the great Jim Murray wrote, where Palmer stepping onto the first tee was like a boxer getting into the ring. I mean, it was really something. And Arnie was just going to kick this course as you know what. And that was aggressive play and firing for the pins and taking chances and all of that. And you know, eventually we wound up making our golf courses, judging them by how tough they were, how difficult were. Well, yeah, you can design bunkers and narrow fairways just to make them hard if that's your goal. But if your goal is to make golfers think, hey, what happens if I take on this bunker or hit close to it or try to carry it? And what's my reward there? And that's where I get back to what Andy's saying is move up a tee box. You know, nobody's asking for this macho approach day after day when you go play. Instead, where's the fun you're having? Is it just from shooting low scores and carrying that bunker the way the equipment manufacturers put their advertisements out there? Or is it, Whether you're a two handicap or a 20, am I being asked to do something that's interesting? Why I like coming back the next day and maybe trying it differently or the conditions ask me to do something different. So I think the simplest solution is for getting these bunkers right, for getting the conditions right, is pick the set of T's that's going to be provide the most interest for you. And that's presumably why so many of us love the game, is by we're being asked by the architect and the conditions of the day to make some decisions. And if we pull them off, yeah, we feel good about ourselves. But it's not just one dimensional day after day. So
1: okay. I went out a little ways, Andy, feel free to agree or disagree. No, I I'm I'm in full agreement with what you're talking about, and, and and as you're describing the the idea of of strategic golf design, made me think of the course I work with a club named Arcola Country Club in uh, in New Jersey, Paramus, New Jersey, right by Ridgewood. They were they were one of the hosts of the uh, the U.S. Amateur a few years ago, and so uh, really, it's a golf club, and this is one of the one. Of the, there's no Tennis, there's no swimming pool they, they just they, they come there to, to eat and to play golf and then then go out on, on their way and they have a high high standard of the tradition of the game and how how competitions are are uh, presented and the course you know is maintained and 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 at, at a higher level that the highest levels that I've that I've seen a long time is by far the, the nicest conditions I've been <laughs> on a long time. And so we're doing master plan because one of the things that, that is being told us, and it's, and it's experienced by myself was that some of these fairway bunkers just are not in play for any of the better players. And they have pushed tees already as far back as they possibly can. And so now we have, we have no place to go back. They're not, they're not, uh, the bunkers are not in, in, in play for many of the, the bigger hitters. So, so what do you do? Do you slide all the bunkers forward then? Do you do you renovate the bunkers so that there are now, you know, the 290 yards and, and further away? So the average player then says, Well, what about the bunkers in my landing area? And so so what ends up happening is you can chart, you know, and they basically have three main uh, 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 types of players. They got the elite players, they've got the club members, and then they got the forward tees, maybe the seniors and the women. And so when you chart you chart what those landing areas do you can talk about strategic design all day long, but you're essentially uh, designing a golf hole for three separate players. And when you, combat, can, when you compare the forward tees all the way back to the, the back tee players, you're playing an entirely different golf course. You're actually now putting bunkers in a place that many of the, the the ladies might be hitting in two, that they have no chance to even reach off, their, off their, uh, their tee shot. And so now in the, in the, in the, In the name of sustainability what's the right number of bunkers you know a lot of i've gotten the habit of doing maybe 50 or 60 bunkers on a good quality members course and now you're if you're starting to to kind of look at it to to be equitable and and similar challenge you're talking about 80 90 100 bunkers to be able to do that so now i'm challenged do i really want to put that many bunkers can i put some other different hazards water creek features grass hollows all of that is on the table but but it does tell me that that you know, there, there is only so far you can go. And, and now at 5% or whatever that rollback might be, to me, actually shrinks that delta between the two. And it actually brings it closer. 5% of 7,000 yards, that's a lot of yardage. 5% of 5,000 yards, not nearly as much. And so I think that's where I feel like this, this has to be done so at least it keeps it from going any further. And who knows? Maybe technology continues to advance, and we're gonna have the same conversation. They have certainly been talking about this for a long time, over a hundred years. I've seen those old Horbert uh, Warren wind uh, articles where they have those bunkers on wheels. They were talking about that in the twenties and the thirties. Uh, this is definitely no. This is definitely not any new, nothing anything new, but uh, but certainly it's it's. I think it's needed to be, it's it's warranted. It's, it's ready to be done.
0: Well, you mentioned earlier you been doing this for 30 years, but from what I understand, uh, it's a little bit longer than that, uh, and you, you might've designed a, your first golf course at the right, ripe right age of 12, uh, can, can you tell yeah. us about your first course and, uh, was it quite as complex then as it is now?
1: <laughs> yes. So <laughs> as I said, I grew up in Wisconsin. My parents owned a little cabin up on a lake, not too far from where sand valley is currently built Uh, actually that same kind of that same region is all all through throughout is also the same sand and our our cottage was on a sandy beach and I got really into golf uh and I started practicing my sand shots on the sand beach there was no grass there was there was just pine trees and sand and you know hitting to a stick in the ground was was kind of boring so it, it would it would be a natural progression to say, okay, well, I'm playing golf. Let me build, build a little green over here and I'll practice my sand shots. So that one little green turned into just practicing sand shots to having nine tees. I, I transplanted trees to make room for uh, some corridors. I made steps. I even had a tee on the dock. Uh, so I had an Island tee and I created, I created my own golf course. I think I was and it was 12. It was one, it was one weekend. My dad came to me and, and told me that, you, you, son, you realize people design golf courses for a living. At that point, that wasn't even on my radar. I was just trying to practice my sand shots. And I said, no kidding. I, you know, At that point, you just think golf courses appear. And I said, well, what do you need to do to do that? My dad, says, I, I have no idea, but I'll, I'll find out. He talked to... Uh, West Bend Country Club was the course that I grew up in Wisconsin, and they were consulting with an architect. That architect told me, uh, told my dad to tell me to go study landscape architecture, and and I think I was twelve years old, and I, that uh, that's all I've ever wanted to do is design golf courses. And and I was drawing pictures as a kid of golf holes, and I uh, went to work uh, for a golf course contractor, and so really, to me, that's how I got the start of the business. And then worked for a couple architects, and then I was in, but. Uh, yeah, so I, I like to believe that one of my first courses. My my first course was when I was twelve, just kind of learning how to get better at the game.
2: Learning how to play in the sand—that's uh, absolutely that's where that's where great architecture usually starts. Oh, it's the best. So so Andy uh, Al, let me know when you can edit this when when we need to you know uh, wrap up. But I'm having some fun, and I wanted to ask you—we're um, talking about. Golden Age Golden Age architecture and one of the one of the greats of the Golden Age that just doesn't get a lot of publicity is Willie Park jr uh, he was a terrific player in his own right renowned for his putting but yeah he doesn't get the love on all the websites and social media that Ross and Tillingast and Mackenzie and Thomas do William Flynn um, you've had a chance to kind of acquaint yourself with what Willie Park did. So Willie Park Jr. anyway, uh, did so well. And in addition, there was a project in particular in Michigan uh, that you restored, renovated, we'll uh, talk about it, called Meadowbrook. And you kind of rediscovered the allure of ditches as a strategic and penal hazard. Tell our listeners a little bit about Wooly Park Junior. and what you accomplished at Meadowbrook.
1: Meadowlark, sorry. Yeah, no Meadowbrook Country Club, Northville. Right. Yeah, Northville, uh, Michigan, just outside of Detroit, near near Ann Arbor. Yeah, so uh, incredibly fortunate to have uh, acquired that that project. And it, if it wasn't for for Meadowbrook, I I probably wouldn't have gotten uh, near the, the the next couple of of opportunities, Olympia Fields, Mount Bruno in in Canada, etc. Meadowbrook really was kind of the launch uh, of of my career, I would think, and super fortunate. So it was originally designed by Willie Park Jr. Uh, Interesting. I think one of the reasons why you don't hear more about Willie Park is the Parks and the Morrises of Scotland were uh, competing families and we all know about old tom morris and the old course at st andrews uh, connection and you know park was a, a an open champion his, his father was a was a good player another open champion and i think it was the morrises that just basically kept the parks in in their place and kept beating them or you know were a, a real strong reason for why the parks are not more famous but uh but it was willie park jr that that actually got his, his name out as a pretty qualified golf course architect, even, uh, you know, the turn of the century, uh, 1900, being told that Sunningdale and Huntercombe and, and the courses that he was working on were some of the best uh, uh, courses that, that, that people at the time had ever played. Park was was responsible, responsible for bringing strategic design past the Victorian age and it's interesting. You can kind of go back to Alister McKenzie and some of the uh, the kind of the the standard names that you find that you re- that you referenced. They they always talked a lot about creating natural golf architecture and and replicating nature. Well, Park was one of those that was still tr- was 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 responsible for that evolution away from the the, the very rigid Victorian uh, kind of philosophy of. Penal golf design, where he he was the first to kind of put things on angles. Uh, he started to touch on it, but he still was kind of mired in that, you know, that kind of more English garden type uh, style design. But uh, through the through the assignment at Meadowbrook, I was able to do uh, as much research on one architect as I've ever done. I went throughout the United States looking at his work. I took a group of the members over to. Uh, to, to London, England, to to see uh, Sunningdale and a, a number of others, including Huntercombe. Coombe. Hunter Coom was his own personal course that he owned and developed himself. It actually bankrupted him, which is one of the reasons why he came back to the United States in 1916 after he lost all of his money building this golf course. But uh, we went there uh, knowing that, that this was probably his version of Pinehurst number two and Donald Ross. He was there always tinkering with it, always, always, uh, uh, kind of refining it, and and it's pretty much preserved into what Park built. And so when you go around this this museum piece of an, of a golf course, you see uh, you see the ditches, you see the the function of, of how to capture drainage in a little bit of a a rudimentary uh, kind of scar that, that that directs drainage away from a green or a landing area. You see uh, features that are not filled with sand, but they have a real gnarly grass face, fescue face, uh, with what, people, what the guys over there would call, you know, the Willie Park pits and pots uh, that weren't necessarily filled with sand. And so, uh, you know, what, what I think we did at Meadowbrook was really just pay homage to what I thought was was kind of the core Willie Park Jr. style that happened to not be very well reflected on the courses that I saw of his in, the, in North America here, and I said, "Hey, let's bring some of this stuff over." Uh, brought some of the concepts of the green design, brought the ditches, brought the the humps and the hollows and the the grass bunkers. And uh, it's uh, Metalbrook's been described as being very bold. The greens are are are, are very uh, very challenging, but very much in the vein of what I say Park would 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 appreciate. Certainly, some of the greens you see at his place at Huntercombe park was famous for saying that if you know if you were a man that could putt you would be a match for anyone and so he always put his place uh p- placed his, his priorities around his greeting surfaces and so i think the putting surfaces at meadowbrook uh, could possibly be some of the best i've ever done and i think it really is what sets meadowbrook apart all those small little details and the drainage features are one thing but the putting surfaces i think are just Uh, I'm really proud of those. And, 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 you know, like I said, without Meadowbrook and getting getting the chance to understand Willie park jr. And then the membership uh, with their trust in our renovation, I I don't think I'd be where I am today. So it's, uh, I'm very fortunate for that project.
2: (laughs) Al, Al, What do you got? (laughs) Do we hit everything you wanted?
0: Well, like, a project like that, where you dive so deeply into to one architect and his background. I know you can't do that with everyone because not everyone is Willie Park. But I mean, how how much is the research into the person behind the architecture? Does that come up in several projects or is that just a function of your interest in these golden age designers and,
1: and such? So, uh, well, uh, I I'd like to believe, you know, here in Phoenix we go back to Phoenix. Many people here don't understand, you know, the historic parts, aspects of golf architecture because there isn't much here. But there is some. Phoenix Country Club was designed by a, ga- a guy named Harry Collis, who came over from Chicago. Uh, not very well known. Not done, hadn't done that, you know, great of work. I don't think it's been very well uh, accounted for. But um, Billy Bell, the Bells at at Mesa. So I, I would tell you that. It's my responsibility, I believe, as an architect to at least understand what has happened before me. So part of the historical research isn't so much just to to dive into the original architect as much as it is to understand how the golf course has evolved and why it's evolved and then be able to say, hey, maybe there's some things that were, that were done back then that are just flat out better. You know, mm-hmm. just because it was done new doesn't mean it's always better. So restoration and, and historical renovations happen to just kind of use the, the, the history as inspiration to give you some guide uh, as to far as where we're going. And I, I like to believe as an architect, I'm always looking for that inspiration. And, and you know, Willie Park was our inspiration at Meadowbrook. Uh, uh, Harry Collis, is, is we're being re- reliant on his original course at Phoenix Country Club. I'm working uh, at a club outside of Montreal, uh, Canada and Quebec. Uh, the original nine holes was was built by by Walter Travis in 1916 and then expanded to 18 by C.H. Allison of Colton Allison. So we think it's the first course that Travis and Allison have ever collaborated on, at least one that it still exists. And the owner there wants to preserve and restore and present the course exactly the way it was. We have an aerial from 1925 and we're going to present the course exactly the way it was in 1925. So we're not going to move bunkers. We're not going uh, to shift to be to, uh, relevant to today. We might add a few back tees, but for the most part, we want we want it to be exactly the way it was. And so I, I think, you know, I think it's a responsibility of an architect to understand the, 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 the history of a course. And then when the opportunity presents itself, use it to make the course more interesting, more authentic, and And I think history is one of the few things that all golfers, they may not know why they like it. They just know they like it. And I think it comes back to that idea of authentic history that people can just relate to. And I I think it's something that modern design has missed and historic design really just captures. And and that's what I love about golf courses. And if I go back to Meadowbrook for a second, you know, there were some things that I saw at Huntercombe Researching for Meadowbrook, saying, "Well, why have I not seen any of this before?" I mean, you have some of the ditches at Oakmont, but there was a green, the fourth green at Onorecum. It's like, wow, I've never seen anything like this ever." But now I bring it back to the United States. Does it become gimmicky or Mickey Mouse or whatever these types of terms? And I and I, and I like to believe that things I'm doing it's not unique or innovative. It's it's just stuff that is applying really good sound design in the right right situation and. I like to draw the inspiration from those types of situations and those types of courses to kind of inform how I go about golf. And I, I, I enjoy doing it. I think, I think others do too. Once I, once I get done with the project.
2: You know, Andy, before we let you go, um, Mm. it's funny. We go, I want to go quickly from the micro to the macro, the micro being a little cool feature at Hunter Coombe that you said you've never seen this before and maybe bring it over here and let people see it for themselves and see if see if its influence spreads but the macro you did something in new mexico that completely revolutionized a losing operation for a city into something that was a huge success for everybody including non-golfers and We're seeing a little bit here and there, whether your name is on it or not, but a trend now towards golf as a bigger, as a part of something bigger, part of a whole. Um, That community concept you call community links. And I truly believe we're going to see more and more of that in the right situation. What was
1: what happened there? yeah you're you're talking about the city of Hobbs, new mexico uh facility called rock wind community links that's it it's uh it's a city-owned facility your classic you know pre-covid underfunded uh uh uh, infrastructure in need of improvements irrigation leaks and breaks uh poor construction all the all the aspects that you, you know about a golf course and 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 I, I actually uh, used an experience actually that was in New Mexico, but on a different project where, you know, as we went through the 90s of arch- uh, golf course architecture, the 1990s, it was this it's kind of the standard, Hey, we're the architect. We're going to come in and show you our vision. And then we're going to ask our owners to, to go uh, find the money and we're going to go build it. And, you know, this idea that there was a, of a signature design that the, the architect was was driving the, the vision for the property. Well, you know, uh, I was, the t- standard master plan process was not one to stop and say, okay, citizens of Los Alamos, New Mexico, what do you want in your golf course? Well, so I went to the, the, this master plan with Los Alamos and presented a master plan to a standing room only, uh, heavily populated with non-golfers, Uh, to talk about three golf holes. If if these three golf holes would have ever been built, they would have been some of the most photographed holes in New Mexico, Uh, but just so happened to be the same place where there were walking trails and biking trails and equestrian trails. And I I had a plan. I was going to move the equestrian trails over, but I was going to build a golf hole. Well, the the citizens that didn't play golf were not going to have it. And I remember standing up in front of them and and, and really – kind of getting skewered uh, uh, on the idea of golf that I said to myself, I don't ever want to go through this meeting again. I have to come up with some idea. The golf industry has to come up with some idea, some way to talk to the 90% of people who don't play golf. They don't care if it's going to be a photograph golf hole or not. Uh, all they care about is is this is open space and it's open for all people. And so when I when I got in front of the city of Hobbs, I, I talked to them about how do we – use this golf course as a centerpiece of their community uh, heavily influenced and in the middle of the oil and gas industry down there a kind of west texas area and and how do we use the golf course to actually promote the game in a way that's not just about the standard 10 percent and insert every stereotype you know about golf or do people think they know about golf uh, to to being something more about kids and about businesses and about uh people that that don't play golf and I I recall as I was going through the master plan there was kind of a makeshift trail around the outside of the golf course and we stopped a couple people that were that were walking and I said I said hey you know that there's a clubhouse over there that's open to the public have you ever been over there to have lunch or to to just hang out and they're like well no why would we go there we don't play golf and it kind of just resonated that said how how have we gotten to the point where that a golf course is only welcomed to golfers? You know the idea of a clubhouse is a golf centric term. It should be more of a community building, or a community uh, hub. And so Rockwind used that uh, that concept. we 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 built great golf. We have an we have an eighteen hole championship course that can host regional and state events. It's seven thousand almost seventy one hundred yards. Uh, it has forward tees all the way down to 4,600 yards. Uh, it was designed in the, the vein of Lankford Monroe, a little more grassy features, plateau greens. Uh, we have a double-ended driving range where you have a main tee uh, specifically positioned by the clubhouse so you can have a very easy in and out from the clubhouse, a back end for the community college, and then a nine-hole kids course, And the entire facility that now has a trail system that kind of intermingles through the golf course, including one that you park at the clubhouse and go out to the clubhouse. And there's a really cool seating area right by a new lake that we built that, that anybody can go sit there and watch golf play. And so I think to me, uh, certainly not always, uh, not, not meant for every golf, golf facility, but I would say that for most municipal facilities, uh, I think they have a responsibility to look past just making money in rounds and they should be thinking in terms of, of the messaging that they have for their golf facilities. And I think community links is, is set, set to try to do that. And uh, I love the fact that there's other courses around the country and other entities, national links, uh, uh, you know, uh, in, in DC is, is doing a great job up there and, A really cool uh number of different city courses around the country that are starting to pop up and i don't know if i had anything to do with it i do know i did a lot of writing and a lot of promoting this idea of community links and i think it's just the right thing to do and so i'm i'm happy to to say that i've got my first community links uh, built and in the ground and functioning and 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 spreading the good word about the game of golf
0: and that's why he was named one of golf's nine most innovative people Right there.
1: It ain't for a lack of trying, right? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Andy, appreciate your your time with us today. You've been very generous with it. Uh, yeah, it's great. It's pleasure talking to you. Um, one final question for me. Uh, of these Golden Age golf course architects, and you've had the opportunity to restore a few of their projects, is there a guy that... Uh, you would jump at the chance if someone said, "Hey, do you want to uh, do this project for us by ex architect?" Who would who would be the guy that you would no questions asked? You know, I'm on it.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I I'd be remiss if I didn't say Willie Park. You know, mm-hmm. Willie Park is somebody that just needs to to be better known as putting surfaces and his detailing was was awesome. I'd also say I've gotten to know Walter Travis. And I, I actually would probably put Walter Travis's putting surfaces up against Gully Park and probably even better in some cases. Uh, Walter Travis is just an incredibly interesting uh, individual in golf, took up the game really late and became our country's best amateur player and then became a pretty prolific golf course architect. And so. Uh, There's another guy that not many people know enough about, and certainly all of his courses are are all private, so it's harder to see his. So, I don't know. You asked me for one. I'd give you two. How about that?
0: (laughs) That's perfect.
2: Joe, anything else from you before we let him go? Well, I mean, you know, we talk about hidden gems, and um, everybody loves the concept. It's almost cliched, but... There's one in the desert southwest, so to speak, the higher desert, uh, Andy, that you were responsible for in Utah, and it's the kind of golf course uh, that, I, I mean, you're just starting to get your name well known. You did this course very early in your career, and there are some folks feel that if there were some other architect's name attached to it, you know, meaning the the folks that, glow in the in the headlights kind of thing that this would be a top 25 in the country public access golf course and i'm talking about sand hollow in the st george utah area um as andy stables gets better known um i think sand hollow will too but that was early in your career and what what's a reason that folks should go see it if they're not familiar with it
1: yeah, Sand Hollow Golf Resort, 27 holes, uh, probably an hour and 15 minutes just north of Las Vegas. Uh, St. George now has a pretty pretty strong regional airport, so it's easier to get there uh, than it was in the past. So I had started my out on my own in 2003, and just a few weeks after starting, uh, I was in a partnership with a, a couple of guys. We got a phone call from a developer uh, that wanted to build a new golf course in Southern Utah and the people that we knew were were connected to, to the golf industry in, in Utah. And they wanted to know if that we would be interested in looking at the property. And, and so, so why should someone go out of their way? It, it is the most beautiful combination of red sand dunes and red sandstone cliffs that you will ever play golf. I don't I don't think there's a piece of property like it. And we 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 built 27 holes, really about 24 holes in pure pure red sand dunes, and then there's three what, what we call the rim holes, uh, 12, 13, and 14, uh, and then 15 is a par three uh, that we had to kind of chisel out of the rock that plays right along the edge of the of the cliff. Some of the most dramatic property that you'll ever that you'll ever see. I think the 15th hole, the par three, is, is should rival if it was an ocean on the left-hand side it would be photographed just like uh, cypress point or or pacific dunes or any of the ones that are hanging on the edge of the ocean but um, yeah it's it it's near and dear to my heart because they hired me as an unknown guy we ended up ultimately partnering together with a developer's team with john foat the two of us built it together i was the project manager and the co-designer i i actually lived on property and and oversaw the construction of the entire, uh, entire property. It's it, it was about the time that Bally Neal Sandhills was already built. Uh, this was uh, So we, we ended up building this in 2000, uh, 2006 and 2007. And uh, this idea of building in sand was starting to be really well known and, and really talked about. And we made trips to a lot of the sand dune uh, courses. And so we didn't build USGA greens. We didn't put drainage everywhere. We, we about as... Uh, with the with the exception of going out on the edge of the of the cliff, with what the owner was absolutely uh, dead set to do, uh, we just built right out of the sand. We just had to make sure we had about two foot of sand on top of the rock uh, to put the irrigation in, and it was it was a dream. And and, and you wonder why golf uh, is is so good in the sand is it's just so it's just so easy. It's it's the secret of of creating great golf, and I think me if you've not been i think you'll you'll you will not be disappointed it's some of the most unique property in the entire world Uh, i think we did pretty good on the golf course too
2: yeah hey you you heard it here first
0: (laughs) i I mean that it's unreal i would encourage anyone listening to go look at pictures of sand hollow uh in utah it's like it it looks like it's you could be fooled like this was ai generated golf that's right (laughs) the, the red lifts and uh i'll plug one of our writers tony deer i don't know if you know him andy he, oh, of
1: course tony yeah yeah
0: he called the 12th uh one of his favorite uh public golf holes in america so yeah, there
1: you go yeah i love it
0: yeah well cool andy again thank you so much uh, we hope to talk to you again soon. I'm sure we. Yeah,
1: could... Al. Any anytime, okay. Al. You, Joe. Anytime. I, this is great. I hopefully, uh, hopefully, I've kept your uh, listeners' attention for this long, but uh, <laughs> this has been fun. Uh, I love talking golf, uh, and so anytime you guys want to do it, I'm I'm all game.